Welcome to the Office 365 Developer Podcast, the only show focused on Office 365 development, where Andrew and I talk to experts from all over the globe coding on the Office 365 platform. For more information on Office 365 development, visit dev.office.com and follow us on the hashtag Office365Dev. All right, well, welcome to episode 122. Coatsy, I had to look at my, uh, my screen really quickly to see what number we on. I'm starting to lose count. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite a few so far. I'm really enjoying this, man. I'm, I, I, you and I talked about this for the first time at Build last year uh, when, we, when we found out that, uh, that Jeremy was, uh, was moving on to, uh, to Azure at that stage. And, um, you know, we, we chatted about how this might work. And then uh, I didn't, you know, I, I was really excited about the, the prospect. And now it's just, uh, it, it's a dream come true working with you, man. Let's put it that way. That's good. I, I love that we've gotten in a good cadence with it, you know, during the, my baby months where I was uh, off on paternity leave, it was a little bit hard. You've you've met the challenge of doing this solo. I had I had a couple months where I was doing this by myself, and Jeremy had a couple months where he was doing it by himself. And it's uh, it's not only harder to do, but it's I think harder to listen to for our listeners. So um, yeah, I agree. It's been great. Um, in terms of Microsoft news in the Office 365 world, this was a big week. Uh, it's the week that. Microsoft Teams uh, reached GA, so that was we're recording this on Wednesday, and and it was went GA on Tuesday of this week, so the 14th. Uh, so big news, you know, that's something that's been in the works for a long, long time. I know that leading up into the the GA, that there was little changes being slipstreamed in, slipstreamed into Teams almost <laughs> on a daily basis. I know that from a developer standpoint, I even had. Um, I don't know if you guys, have, our listeners, have seen the Excel bot. It's really cool. You can manipulate Excel that lives in like OneDrive through a bot. But that team reached out to me. They're like, "Hey, I can't, I can't get this to work in a, a team chat." And what it was is, is we got rid of the way we were sideloading bots, and now you you build a manifest, and it's a little bit more official. So um, yeah, lots of changes, but excitement. There's two links that we'll share in the show notes. Uh, related to the uh, go live, there was one on Office Blogs, but then there was also one on dev.office.com that kind of gives the developer spin. In fact, Richard Moe, who was our guest last week, he wrote that article out on uh, dev.office.com. Right, right. And then um, there was, some, of course, there was some great stuff uh, as part of the Visual Studio launch as well. And, and Mike Amelan did a, a great session on um, building bots, connectors, and tabs in Microsoft Teams. Actually, I'm going to steal most of that content and re-deliver a bunch of it at um, the SharePoint User Group here in Sydney next week. Yeah, really cool. You know, again, just um, it ha- that happened to be related to that Visual Studio launch, but just you know, it, it was very timely. Uh, because it was so close to the GA of Teams as well, and and I th- thought Mike did a really good job of kind of summarizing that all up. It's a it's a really good video, so check that out. Um, other news in the Office Dev world: there's uh, the the graph, and you know this week we're going to be talking Microsoft Graph with our our guest, but uh, they announced some new improved trending insights out of the Microsoft Graph. If you weren't aware. Uh, there was this thing that we used to call the office graph. Don't use the term office graph. You will get Gina Arenas will like hunt you down and find you. But so I found uh, this out the other day on an internal call. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't use the term office graph. There is one graph, and it is the Microsoft graph. But so a lot of those things that were kind of in the office graph is really just SharePoint search. That's all I can say. And and so. We took many more insights out of that and, and are building those into the Microsoft Graph. And so they talk about 
there's in fact there's completely new paths to be able to query insights. Uh, you know, before you could just get to a user and say trending around or people. You know, now Working we're actually yeah, we actually have a, an insights path that is part of the Microsoft Graph. So you can get to a user and say slash insights and then slash trending. And that just is opening the door up for more things by having that namespace, I think. Um, I think hopefully you can get the feeling that we're going to be adding many, many more types of insights over time. Absolutely, and and it's it's such a key part of the the, uh, the graph experience from my point of view. Is it really part of the, the value that that the graph adds? Uh, another thing that the SharePoint guys, of course, have done their their March release, the patterns and practices. SharePoint patterns and practices team have done their March release, and a bunch of uh, a bunch of stuff coming out of that. Um, and of course, they um, uh, they had a community call on the, on the fourteenth of March, which is uh, that will be a recording for as well. Uh, always worth checking those out. Lots of great stuff going on in there. Yeah, and their webcast this week was on accessing data in SharePoint from a SharePoint framework solution. So uh, certainly a, a top-of-mind thing for anyone that's building in SharePoint. And, and just to point out, like I, I went to the, the link. We'll have it in the show notes for the March release notes for PNP. My gosh, i got to tell you, Vesta Yuvanen, I already knew he was a monster, but man, you got to see how much information he's aggregated there for people that are interested in PNP. Uh, I mean, it, it is very, very comprehensive and, you know, all the way down to who contributed that month. So it, you don't have to be a Microsoft person to, to be on that list. Any community member that wants to contribute to PNP can certainly have their um, their voices heard. Absolutely. Um, just just harking back to the Visual Studio launch, which happened last week, and we talked a bit about it uh, on last week's show, but um, Mike Amelan did a, a really good uh, session as a pre-record for that on building organizational apps for iOS, Android, and Windows, and the web using Microsoft Graph. So that's, uh, if you, if, you know, 50-odd minutes of, uh, of quite good uh, um, uh, content on using uh, Xamarin and web apps to, uh, to use, and the Graph to, to build applications that, that use the Graph as the back end. And this next one, I noticed uh, in the notes, Coatsy, you put one on the Microsoft REST API guide. What is that? I'm not familiar with this. So uh, this, is, uh, this particularly seemed uh, relevant to me because we're going to talk to Jeff uh, a little bit later on about uh, stuff in the graph and how the, 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 uh, the Microsoft graph is a, is a REST API. Um, Every time I point this out to people, they're um, they're, they're so impressed with, uh, with with the work that's gone into it. There's, Microsoft have produced a, a, a set of guidelines for for how to write a REST API, and I've and I've pointed a number of my partners at this who are building APIs for their for their back end, uh, and it's uh, it's a comprehensive set of notes um, that, um, uh, that that show you how to uh, uh, show you how to build a REST API and the sort of things you need to be thinking about. So uh, in the in, in, it's, it's a GitHub repo, you can contribute to it or you, or you can work off it, but there's some smart, smart people working on this uh, on this working group. You know, Dave Campbell, Rick Rashid, John Shuchuk, Mark Krasinovich, um, you know, a bunch of those people whose names you probably will have heard from, from all over the place, uh, who are some of the really smart technical fellows and, 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 and uh, technical people at Microsoft, deciding how an API should be put together, what sort of things it needs, uh, how to go and do filtering and get notifications and uh, webhooks and standardizing on JSON and doing Delta queries and all that kind of stuff, rather than the, the implementation of, of, of what those things are, it's how to expose them to, to, uh, uh, to developers so they can, they can have a standard experience. And we've, there's a, a comprehensive document there that shows you how to do that. And if you are interested in building an API, then this is a great, great place to start. Very cool. Um, 
In terms of the community, I'm going to actually point out one that we already talked about last week, but uh, this is writing your first Handlebars JS web part with the SharePoint framework. It's by Stefan Bauer, and we mentioned it last week on the show, but Stefan reached out to me behind the scenes, and he was like, hey, man, i, I gotta got to school you on something. You, were, you, you made this big talk about this is Handlebars JS versus Handlebars with Node. What he told me, and I wasn't aware of this, and I feel really embarrassed by this because I've written at least a dozen little web applications in Node with Handlebars, is it's the exact same Handlebars. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't realize that. Uh, I knew that Handlebars JS... Um, I know that you know when you're using it with Node, it feels like it's a server-side thing because it feels very much like you do ASP.NET MVC and and you know how you build your markup. But um, he schooled me. He was like, "Oh uh, yeah, it's all kind of the same thing." And Handlebars doesn't do the best job of how they name things and in, in terms of uh, you know making it easy to understand that it's all kind of the same technology. But um, I'm glad that he pointed. I hate. Sounding like a fool on the the podcast, but Stefan, thanks for pointing out me being a fool. And um, you know, I by doing that, you get your blog post recognized for two weeks in a row. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, um, Elias Ruff has uh, has done a really good uh, post on creating and renewing your Graph webhook subscriptions, Microsoft Graph webhook subscriptions. This is really relevant to some of the stuff we'll talk to uh, to Jeff about in the next interview. So definitely check that out. And, and our, our buddy Kirk Evans, who was on the show a couple weeks back, uh, he created a blog post on creating a Node.js application secured by Azure AD. I wonder if he used the Node version of Handlebars. <laughs> ah, just kidding. No. Uh, Kirk always does a fantastic job. He's one of my favorite people and does a great job blogging. So je- definitely check that out. Excellent. Yeah, that, that's very, very cool. Um, and then... Um, th- there's a, a post here called, which intriguingly called, perhaps the only SharePoint framework web part you'll ever need. Uh, and that uh, Michael Swenson, who we had on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, has done uh, a really interesting post on, uh, on, on how, to, uh, uh, how, how to build a, a web part that's pretty much uh, all-inclusive. Yeah, you know, this is funny. It almost feels like the inception version of a web part <laughs> in a lot of ways because... The the SharePoint fr- framework really is like a glorified. I, I and I'm I'm gonna get marketing people like furious with me and all my <laughs> SharePoint framework friends, but it's like a glorified version that is like really well done of a script editor web part. Uh, now an end user doesn't have to deal with the script, but that's like that's how people were using script editors and content editors. Um, it's kind of one of the reasons why the SharePoint framework came to fruition was hey, this is a way for us to put more governance around how that's done. Um, and that's a great thing. And, and I think it's certainly, um, it certainly has addressed those concerns. But by like creating what it was meant to solve over again, it feels like this weird inception. But uh, I do think it's an interesting thing. And I do think it's, it'll probably be a, a popular type of, of web part that people use. Um, Kind of moving on, uh, Chris O'Brien, another one of my, my favorite bloggers uh, based out of the UK, he wrote a, a, a post on provisioning modern pages and SharePoint framework web parts. So, you know, this goes into a little bit about the methodology of, you know, how you might create new pages versus modifying an existing page and, and goes through some code on how you might go about uh, manipulating some of this via code. So uh, definitely check this out. And you know, he even went through and did the work of finding various like web part IDs so that you can work with those via um, code. 
One of the things I really like about this post is he's talked about um, using the patterns and practices methods for provisioning. And, and he says that, look, you could code against it yourself. It is possible to, to do it uh, natively, but there's no real upside. You, you're much better off using the, 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 the tools and, and, and techniques that the PMP team have provided. Yep. All right, so this, uh, the Rencore guys have, uh, have popped up a, a, great, uh, a great webinar at Building Better Solutions on the SharePoint Framework. Um, definitely check that out. And then, of course, um, uh, Mark Rackley has done a, uh, another post, as he does week after week. It's, uh, it's awesome, to, awesome to see his stuff up there. Uh, and this one's on uh, an updated uh, SharePoint Framework content slider code for the general availability um, uh, of, uh, of SharePoint Framework. Cool. Well, the last two I want to mention here are from our founder of the podcast, Jeremy Thake. He did a really good blog post on what SharePoint administrators need to know about the SharePoint framework. you got to understand that the SharePoint framework runs as a full trust solution, and what that means for admins is you know, whatever code is in there, it gets to run as the user. So if that user is a, you know, a farm admin, you have a web part that can run as a farm admin. And so um, he brings up some interesting just considerations around this. But then even better, uh, this week he had Mike Ammerland. We need to get Mike back on here, but Mike Ammerland is kind of the the technical marketing manager over all things SharePoint. Um, and had a really kind of, I think, a heart-to-heart -heart with him around the SharePoint framework. And I thought it was a really – I got – Jeremy let me listen to this early. It's um, – in fact, at, it's not even published as of the, this recording, but it will, will be published tomorrow when ours is. Um, and it's a really good podcast, and, and I think Mike was very candid in what the SharePoint framework can do and can't do. So both check out both Jeremy's blog post and then kind of the, the podcast that, that um, kind of talks to that a little bit further with the insiders at Microsoft. Um, well, with that, that kind of covers all the weekly updates this week. Lots of, I mean, gosh, man, you remember after the holidays, we had like nothing. <laughs> now we, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I'm, yeah, this, I'm going to have to put together like a huge HTML to give to the office blogs folks. But anyway, that's, that's a good problem to have. And I'm excited that, um, you know, we have a community that's producing so much right now. This week on the show, we have Jeff Sakowitz. Jeff, um, sits on... The C and E side of the Microsoft Graph. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we talk a little bit on about it on the uh, podcast. And I've I've been Jeff's kind of a new guy for me to work with, but uh, super impressed by him. Is have have you had any run-ins with Jeff over the years? Mate, the uh, only time I met him was was uh, you organized uh, an internal. Uh, uh seminar or, or meeting uh, the other day uh, and, and, and Jeff presented that and I, I was on that call and, and I was super impressed with uh, with how detailed his knowledge was of what was going on behind the behind the scenes in the graph and it was a great idea to have him on the show. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to like insult any of our engineers but like what I find is sometimes some of our like deep technical engineers like have a hard time articulating themselves and that's certainly not Jeff. I think Jeff does a fantastic job of articulating uh, you know what the graph team is doing and um, has really good knowledge of kind of the overall vision of, of the graph so you know he's he's a peer to like Yina Arenas but Yina is kind of the the mastermind on the you know the office side but uh, you know this is you know Jeff works a little bit more on the identity side and, and uh, Azure AD graph and all those things I won't go into too much detail I'll let Jeff do it so let's uh, run that interview 
All right. Well, welcome to the show, Jeff Sakowitz. Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Hey, for those that don't know you, I want you to give yourself just a, a quick introduction and, and kind of the history with Microsoft. Interestingly, I didn't even know you until recently. We had a, uh, some internal meetings where we had uh, some people from various parts of the org come and talk to DX, and, and Jeff was one of those, and he talked about the graph, and like, this is my space, and yet like somehow we had never worked together, and you did such a great job, I thought it would be awesome to have you on the podcast, but why don't you give our listeners a little bit of uh, who you are and, and what you do for Microsoft? All right, so I currently work on the Microsoft Graph. Um, I'm in the cloud and enterprise division here at Microsoft. Uh, historically, I've worked on identity services and Azure Active Directory. And then in the past couple years, I've gotten more focused on our developer story and started working on our APIs, um, starting out with the Azure AD graph and then more recently uh, focusing on the Microsoft graph. Uh, so due to that background, you know, I tend to work on some of our more directory-centric APIs around users and groups. And I also work on a bunch of our shared platform capabilities that span across all the different types of data that live in the graph. So this is uh, these are things like Delta Query, webhooks, our hybrid capabilities, and things like that. Awesome. So we're going to talk about a couple of those different areas of the graph today. I thought those would be really good topics. But I thought it would be interesting to take a, a just a pause and talk a little bit about how the, the organizational structure of Microsoft. I think that for a lot of people, it's it's pretty fascinating. And even for myself, I've been with Microsoft for about six years. Uh, it still, to me, is a bit of um, rocket science how we're, we're organized. But um, so you mentioned like Cotton Enterprise, like the, the C&E space within Microsoft, that's where like all things Azure live. Um, and then there's this other side, and it used to be called application services group or ASG it's not I don't think we really call it that anymore but that's where like all of the like the end user products and services like office office 365 sharepoint all of those were on the ASG side of the house and so they very like separated and what I think is really unique about this is the Microsoft graph is kind of one of those first times where we're seeing this really close coordination between these like opposite sides of our our engineering organization is that right that's true and you know microsoft graph is a really good example of it but i think it kind of starts with the underlying principle that people shouldn't have to care about you know what cvp i chain up to versus what cvp someone else chains up to when they're using our products you know and whether they're user end users developers it admins we need to make sure that you know we're giving a consistent experience and microsoft graph is a big part of that story you know we want to make sure that we have a single programming model you know a single api that's easy to work with regardless of you know where the underlying data lives or who's working on those underlying data streams i've often said that um uh, that Microsoft used to be, instead of a, a single organization, a sort of a loose collection of warring fiefdoms. But the graph and, and, and other a actions like it seem to have really changed that uh, internally. Yeah, there's a really big focus on, you know, building a one Microsoft story. So how did that come about? How, how, did, how did we even get to the stage where we've gone from everyone sort of looking after their own interests to what is best for our customers, <laughs> I guess, uh, and have, having this one Microsoft thing? Because there must have been some really interesting uh, teething issues to get to the stage where we could, you could start producing a single uh, set of APIs. Yeah, and I think it really comes down to 
having this customer obsessed mindset that you'll hear Satya talk about and you'll hear a lot of folks talk about. You know, if you start focusing on what are the things we can do to deliver the best experiences and the best products and services for our customers, you kind of naturally uh, fall into this, I guess, pit of success where you start to break down org barriers, people start to, you know, work together towards common goals and, you know, try and build good things for our customers. And and I think that, um, you know, it feels very much to me like with the Microsoft Graph, that's what we did. We kind of started with that, what is like that best experience for developers and worked backwards because, um, and maybe you can speak to some of this, that I know that a lot of the individual endpoints did things, each one of them kind of had their own kind of weird ways of handling certain types of things, whether it was OData queries. I know like you come from the the AD graph and AD graph things like how it dealt with versioning was was very different. Were you kind of uh, involved in some of that like coordination to try to get to some standards around how different services would roll up into the graph? Yeah, I've been I've been involved in different bits and pieces of that. Um, not as much with versioning, uh, but a good example is Delta Query. Uh, so we. You know, Delta Query, you know, is a way for application developers to be able to learn about changed data in Microsoft Graph, um, whether that's something new that's been created, something that's been updated, or something that's been deleted. And this is not a new concept. Um, this existed. This you know, this concept of change tracking or sync APIs uh, existed in a bunch of the various APIs that were spread throughout Microsoft. And you know we wanted to bring it into Microsoft Graph because it's really important for developers. And we all sat down and we said, okay, what have we learned from all these different implementations, all these different schemas and programming models around change tracking? And then what's the what's the best thing we could possibly do? What's the most usable we could possibly make this? And, and, and how do we make that work across all the different data types so that you have a consistent experience, whether you're tracking changes to OneDrive files or users and groups that live in AAD or the user profile of a Microsoft account user? And so breaking that down, let's break down like Delta Query specifically because that was one of the areas that I thought we'd, we'd kind of dive deep into like, like let, let's break that down in its simplest form. Like, how, how is a developer, how do I, what is, what exactly is a Delta query, and, and how do I leverage it in an application? So a, a Delta query is basically a get changes request. Um, so what you do, and we, we designed it with usability top of mind. So what you'll do to use it is you'll walk up to Graph, and you will construct your standard query, um, so you know graph.microsoft.com/users, for example. And then to tell us that you're going to want to track changes on users, you'll add the you'll add a slash delta on the end of that query, which under the hood invokes a delta function. But you'll still you'll still do a get. Um, so it'll just look like your exact user query that you would submit normally, except with the slash delta, and we'll give you back a list of users. Uh, in the organization that you're making the call against. It will also give you back a state token. Um, this state token is either going to be encoded in a next link or a delta link, uh, both of which are completely opaque. 
URLs that can be just used as is by the client. Um, if the client gets a next link, this means there's more data to be retrieved, and they should use that next link to get the next page. It's effectively you know, a paging mechanism. If the client gets back a delta link, this means that they've gotten all the data we have available at the time being, and they should store that delta link um, to be used in the future. So you, you cache the delta link, and then after some time goes by, um, you can call us back using that delta link, and we'll tell you what changed. Um, that, can, that time that goes by can either be a set interval, or it can be a dynamic amount of time, and the, the callback request can be triggered uh, by some event. Uh, that event may be a user in a web portal clicking refresh on their user list uh, inside of an application, or that event may be a, a webhook that the application previously subscribed to uh, that sent a push notification out to an endpoint, uh, letting it you know letting the app know that we have some new data available. Cool. And does Either that? Way, I was going to say, does that does that expire? So uh, I, I get this link, I get this uh, this this token back that says. Um, uh, ask me if there's anything changed since then. Can I do that six months down the track, or, or is there some limit on how long that takes? Good question. It should be used within 30 days. Okay, so it's a reasonable amount of time. It's not something I've got to do every hour. Exactly, and it'll vary. You know, that, that interval will vary depending on the application. You know, if it's something interactive um, or if you're doing an authorization check, for example, based on the, you know, freshness of group membership, um, you want to check very frequently. Um, if you have, it's, if it's a big background sync job, you, you know, you might not be so concerned about uh, asking for changes every few minutes or even in a matter of seconds. Sure. I, I guess my from from my point of view, I was just asking mainly. I think the concept of an offline app that understands the occasional connectivity. This is this is perfect for that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So from a, a like before Delta Query, you know the the approach would be you'd you'd probably end up having to kind of keep some sort of like chronicle like time in terms of like when the last time you queried and. And in some cases, like if I were getting messages, I could probably say, hey, anything that's hit my inbox after that would be, um, you know, probably what I wanted to pull. But it was it was a lot more what I would call technical gymnastics of providing different OData queries to try to filter out results, right? Exactly. And in some cases, you know, with uh, users, for example, or groups or group membership, you couldn't even express a filter that said, you know, only show me users who uh, or group memberships that change that were created or removed after, you know, Wednesday the first. You know, you you would ha actually have to do we would we you know you'd be forced to do one of two things generally. Uh, you'd be forced to either. Uh, do a full read of the entity set you're interested in and then do a diff calculation between what was you know currently stored in the apps database or you'd be re you'd be forced to do a full replace and to basically do a full overwrite of all the data in the apps database um, neither of which is ideal so you know with delta query we just tell you that we tell you what's changed and then your app can act accordingly and delta queries go hand in hand with this concept of webhooks as well don't they because now you can get notified that something's changed Tell, me, tell us a bit of how that works. Yeah, so both Delta Query and Webhooks can be used uh, independently. However, they are better when used together. So, you know, the, the usage pattern that we generally recommend is 
that you do your initial query with Delta Query and get your full read of the resource you're interested in. And then as soon as you're done you know, draining the response and paging through all the results, and, you, and you, as soon as you store that Delta link, you also open up a webhook subscription. And, and then as soon as something changes, and you open up a webhook subscription for the same resource or set of resources that you care about, um, then as soon as something changes, you know, we'll send you that poke um, that we do with webhooks and to a, you know, a, a, a predefined URL that your client specifies. And then you can call back with that Delta link. And when you, you know, redeem that Delta link, we'll tell you what's changed. And you can continue that pattern. So then you can kind of, uh, you know, we had some, some data about AAD differential query. Um, and as we were looking at ways to, you, we were looking at the older APIs and make, seeing how we could improve things in Microsoft Graph. And we looked at data and it was a va- there was a very overwhelming amount of Delta query or it was differential query back in AAD Graph. A very large amount of uh, differential query requests came back with null responses, which told us that people were calling on a regular interval because they felt that they had to because right. they didn't want to miss changes, but they were getting nothing back. And that's a lose for everybody. It's just, it's just wasted resources, wasted traffic. Um, so when you optimize with webhooks, now you can be sure, you know, you know that you're calling back um, when there's actually data to get. And you make sure you, uh, you know, you're not burning through resources that you don't need to. So is that, I mean, is that rule true regardless of how chatty, what it, like what I'm wanting to know changes for? Like, so I, I imagine, like, you know, adding a group might not have the same duration as like uh, you know maybe new mail in in a very popular person's inbox is it does the is the pattern like you know in something that's really chatty you know is it is is webhook do y'all feel that that is still a, a necessary overhead or is it something that maybe starts to dilute a little bit and when you look at something that becomes a little bit more chatty I do think that it depends on the scenario. It depends on the type of data you're tracking changes on. It depends on what the app is meant to do and, you know, how chatty the uh, resource is and, you know, whether that's the, the person or the organization that you're tracking changes for. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely think it varies. I think there are certain, you know, uh, there, there are definitely certain scenarios where, you would just want to, you know that changes are going to occur, at, you know, every five minutes or less, and you could just call back every five minutes, especially if it's something that you don't need to know happened the, the moment it happens, um, it, which is why, you know, web, both webhooks and Delta query can exist and can work just fine completely standalone, and there are, there are certain scenarios when they are way better together, and there are certain scenarios where they're okay to use on their own. Are there any other... Um any other ways that other than webhooks? Because webhooks is HTTP, and, and some people think of that as, as, as not terribly efficient. Are we, are we looking at other ways that we can communicate with a graph? We are. There's a couple things we're exploring in the future of the sync and change tracking space um, that might be more efficient ways to track changes in sync data in specific scenarios where webhooks and Delta Query uh, aren't... Um, ideal you know we we don't have anything to announce yet there but definitely you know folks should stay tuned um because we are and you know you know also uh, if you have scenarios where you know our current what we've currently got doesn't fit let us know we'd love to hear it and stay tuned because we are thinking about some some other pieces of technology awesome
What about the security of this? And when I when I say that, if if I'm building an uh, an app and I go and do my registration in one of our app portals, are there are there? I think I know the answer to that. Given it it it's you're not really changing the query so much as just adding something to it. But are there any sort of special scopes that I need in order to actually leverage Delta queries? No, uh, and that's another thing that we wanted to make sure. You know, when we designed Delta Query, we wanted to make sure it was very simple and it felt like a very natural extension of a normal query that you would perform. Uh, the rule of thumb is if you need permission X to make API call Y, when performing the Delta version of API call Y, you still need that same permission. Because at the end of the day, you are just reading the same data and we're just telling you whether it changed or not. So basically, like, if, if there are developers out there that have existing applications that maybe, you know, are using more a filtered approach to try to get changes in some sort of way or have an application that every time it loads gets a, you know, a, a full query of groups or a full query of users or one of these things that isn't as easily filtered, this is something that with no changes to the like, registration of their app or like how they're getting tokens, they can simply just modify queries and start leveraging these. Exactly. That's the idea. So, so the, the, just so I've got this right in my head, the, the thing you need to do is put a, a delta a slash delta at the end of the, your, your query, and then when it comes back, it'll give you pages, and, but also a delta link, whereas previously it just gave you page links. Is that right? If there's, so if you make a query and there's more, we have more data to give you. So that you can think of the initial query kind of like a full sync. Um, so you're going to get all the data that exists in a state of time um, or you know, at a given point in time. And so if there's more data available uh, than we can give in a single page, we'll give you a next link. Uh, I, and I get that now. I get that now without a delta, without a slash delta at the end, right? Right. So, so we, yeah, we'll give you that same next link. And then once you're done draining all the data, you, you know, you, you page through all the uh, available data and you reach the last page, then you'll find that Delta link. Okay. And, and, but I do have to do something special. I guess the question is, I do have to do something special to get that Delta link, right? I have to add my slash Delta to the end of the query. Yep. Exactly. So on a, on the webhooks front, um, I heard you describe what we're doing with webhooks today as a ping, and I thought that was a really good description. Do you want to maybe explain a little bit what you mean by that when we say that today our webhooks kind of are a ping webhook, and like how those, you know, how you guys possibly are looking at evolving that over time? Sure. So yeah, the the model today is that webhooks are just very basic. Uh, constructs that tell an app that it's it needs that it should take some action that some event has occurred and now there's action to take whether that's doing a full read of a of an object or a, a set of objects or doing a delta query you know replaying that delta token we talked about um, and you know it's meant to reduce the amount of polling and let apps be more keep, keep their data up to date in a much more efficient manner. Um, we have heard, you know, customer feedback around making webhooks richer and actually adding data uh, in, into the payload. And that is, that is something that we're thinking about. Uh, you know, we don't have anything 
uh, to announce on that. But it is something we're thinking about. And, you know, again, same as I said before with some of the other future sync things, you know, we love to hear... Uh, we love to hear the feedback and the, the you know the scenarios in which that'd be useful. So as always, you know if if you have scenarios, you know we look at user voice, Stack Overflow, Twitter. Um, so keep that feedback coming. Cool. Um, so the um, I, I guess this, this is a really impo- a really interesting um, uh, balancing act, I guess, because uh, one of the things about webhooks is they're supposed to be extremely lightweight. They're supposed to be quick and, and unobtrusive and if you start putting too much too much of a payload in there then that that stops right how, how do you guys go about um balancing that uh that that, that conflict yeah I, I think the way to think about it is with, with things like this we tend to want to give developers choice and we know that some developers will prefer the lightweight nature uh, and this, you know, this just applies to our APIs in general. I think, you know, so, some developers want to optimize for for speed and the size of the payload and latency, um, and, and some want to optimize for fewest round trips um, and other things like that. So I, I think at the end of the day, you know, we want to make the default behavior something that's going to be useful to as many people as possible, but also when when we could make something that's more useful for a subset of our customers, you know, we, we, we give them a choice and we let them opt in uh, to something that may be an optimized behavior for them. Cool. Awesome. So I guess the, the final question about webhooks and, and, and Delta Query is what are their states in terms of, can I use them in production today or are they going to be available soon? How's that all work? So we have webhooks in production uh, for Outlook and OneDrive entities. Uh, we have Delta Query in production for OneDrive, and it's currently in preview for Outlook and Azure Active Directory. So things like mail, calendar, contacts, users, and groups. Um, and you know we're looking to get those to uh, general availability as soon as possible. Um, you know we've got some things to clean up. We've got some you know customer feedback that we're integrating into you know the design before we go uh, go to GA. And we would love to have you know more people test that. Excellent. And and where do I go to find out um, when it's available or what's available uh, and in what state? Uh, so as always, you can keep an eye on our documentation, uh, which recently moved to developer.microsoft.com/graph. Awesome, by the uh, from, way. Great. Glad to hear you like it. <laughs> yeah, I think we did a really good job. Uh, our docs folks did a really good job with the the redesign landing page and everything. Um, so. Yeah, it, it looks good. Um, and also, you know, keep an eye on our blog. Keep an eye on, uh, you'll, you know, you'll hear some stuff on Twitter as well. And then, as always, uh, you know, Build is right around the corner, and so we'll definitely have a bunch of fun stuff to talk about there. Awesome. Well, the other thing, I guess, since we have you on, on the podcast, I, I one of the big announcements last week was it was talking about the graph extensions, which me and bo- both me and Coatsy thought that that was such a exciting new addition for app developers being able to kind of store their own data in kind of a unique namespace and, and be able to retrieve that later. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and and you know what how that came about and and what we're doing with that? Yeah, so I'm really excited that we just went into preview with some 
some great new extensibility features. So really, at, at a high level, the data extensions are give developers the ability to extend the schema of Microsoft Graph. And they let them add custom properties to Microsoft Graph resources so they can now uh, store data right in the graph as opposed to needing to have that sitting in a local store and you know, basically stitching together their call to the graph with something that sits in a, in a local database. Uh, they can store that data in the graph and make a single call to get a full representation of a given resource in, in a way that's meaningful for the app. And now, are, are those extensions, are they specific to the app that created them, or is it something that can be shared with other apps? Like, for instance, if I, if I generated some extended properties on, say, a user, um, can my app B be able to get access to those extensions? It depends. So we have two types of extensions. We have open extensions, um, which you might notice were are very similar to what was already available uh, as on as Office 365 data extensions on messages and events. Um, and what we did is we're, like we're doing with a lot of different pieces of functionality, we're making, you know, we're unifying that story, pulling it all under a single model. Um, so what was previously known as Office 365 data extensions now will work across things like users and groups as well. And we're calling them the entire set open extensions. Uh, these are specific for the developer's own app and these are unstru- these are these are unstructured not strongly typed just a pretty basic uh, name value property bag and then we have schema extensions which are strongly typed properties and they're you know defined schema elements um, and these are Discover, these are discoverable by other apps. So if a developer has something that they think will be valuable to other developers and other applications, they can add, they can add them as a schema extension um, and share that value. So I just want to make sure I clarify that because uh, so it's not possible for me to use a, um, the, the, open, the open extension if from, a, from a separate app even, even if I know the namespace. Is that correct? That is correct. It's only for your app's own use. Okay, how's that enforced? Is that, is that something? Is that something you set up at the AD level? Yeah, so we under the hood we do the authorization check. Uh, it's not something the developer has to worry about. Um, but yeah, we we have uh, you know behind the API, you know, in our authorization level, uh, we we do a check for that. Interesting. Okay. All right. That's. Um that, that, in, in fact, in some ways, that's a shame because I can imagine doing th- grabbing things like um, some additional um, uh, HR information, you know, name of dog or whatever it happens to be, in in, in one app, and then being able to use it in in, in another app that, to, that that I've that I've still written. So I, to do that, I need to do a schema extension instead. Yeah? You know, we're always open to feedback. Um, you know, so if we, if we get feedback saying that people love open extensions and, and don't want to use and, and you know want to use them across apps, but for some reason don't want to be bound to the you know strongly typed nature of schema extensions and things like that, you know we can certainly uh, evaluate whether we'd want to make open extensions shareable. Okay. Yeah, cool. you know, I, I, it kind of feels to me like what you just described there, Coatsy, is. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking at Microsoft. Like at Microsoft, we all have an employee ID, and it's like tied into what we call head tracks. And I, I could see MSIT wanting to extend 
like our user to have that ID possibly, but that's kind of a sensitive type of information that I I might want to share it internally between my different internal apps, but I probably wouldn't want to share it outwardly. And so I would probably just store that in my own system. It's not something that I would necessarily extend the schema for, whereas I could see really valuable things being one of the schema extensions. Like I could see it huge for like account linking. Like, uh, you know, we... I, I'm not even going to go down this rat hole, but you know, through the LinkedIn acquisition, if I could somehow link what my you know details of my LinkedIn account would be to that user, like what my LinkedIn ID is, like to me that seems like it would be a valuable thing. So that like when I sign in, it might be something that would be valuable to to some of those other applications. Right, that's cool. Well, awesome. Um, well, Jeff, I certainly appreciate you spending some time and, and chatting with us. Uh, all three to me, uh, you know, whether it be webhooks or Delta queries or the different, you know, graph extensions are all, to me, uh, uh, super exciting things and, and are showing the, the great direction that, you know, people like you are, are helping getting into the graph and certainly appreciate all that. Awesome. And of course, if people want samples for using the Microsoft Graph, the, Git, the github.com slash Microsoft Graph uh, organization is a great place to go too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks again. And we'll have to have you on again sometime, maybe uh, sometime after the build time frame when I'm sure there's some great things that are hiding up your sleeves and we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. That sounds great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks. Well, that's all for this week. Make sure you check out dev.office.com for all our podcasts, the developer program, and other amazing content. Also, make sure you follow us at Office Dev on both Twitter and Facebook. Until next week, get your code on.